0: All right, well, good evening. Can I have you guys all turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 1? 1 John chapter 1. The first part of 1 John chapter 1 revolves around our fellowship with God. In fact, you can make a case that the whole book really revolves around that. Our fellowship with God. We read in verse 3, That which we have seen and heard... We declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. Now, we've already pointed out, guys, that uh, our fellowship with God is both positional and practical. We enter into positional fellowship, which is oneness with him, at the moment of salvation. That never changes. That's why it's called eternal life. By its very definition, it has to be life for eternity. And the reason it's unchanging and eternal is because it's unconditional. We didn't have anything to do to purchase it, we just received it as a gift. And therefore, we can't do anything to lose it in the way of not measuring up or something. Okay? But practical fellowship with the Lord is something we maintain moment by moment of each and every day as we stay close to Him, away from sin, walking in the Spirit. And so positional fellowship is permanent and can never be broken, whereas practical fellowship can be broken through sin and can only be restored through confession and repentance. We'll see that in a moment. I'm not sure that um, many Christians understand how important our fellowship is to God. It is something he greatly desires from us. Look, God doesn't need anything from us. He is totally self sufficient, all right? He uh, doesn't need anything from anything in his creation. But while God doesn't need our fellowship, our love, he does desire our fellowship. God is love. And when you are full of love, you want to share that love with others, especially with your children. You know, uh, husbands and wives don't need children. But most couples want children to love and have fellowship with. And, of course, as the child grows from infancy to adolescence to adulthood, so does that fellowship grow deeper, just like our walk with God. The longer we walk with the Lord and uh, the more we grow spiritually spiritually, the deeper our fellowship with God becomes. Guys, redemption is all about restoring the fellowship with man that was broken and lost through the fall. Many Christians think that God's primary purpose for saving us was to keep you know, us from going to hell. You know, that, That's why God saved us. He wanted to keep folks from going to hell. Um, nice thought, uh, but not really. He's a great byproduct. Praise the Lord. I'll tell you what, if that was God's primary purpose in saving us, to keep people from going to hell, I got a better solution. Uh, don't create anybody in the first place, then nobody goes to hell. The main reason that God saved us was so that we could be connected to Him in intimate, joyful, eternal fellowship, which would make us true worshipers, John 4 verses 23 and 4, and allow us to bring him glory in this world. So guys, God's goal in redeeming us was to bring us into fellowship with himself, allowing us to bear the fruit of the Spirit so that uh, we would ultimately bring him glory as lights in the darkness in this dark world. And um, as people would see our light, they would be drawn to Jesus and be saved. Of course, the devil's goal is to keep people away from God to keep them walking in darkness so that they never get saved. They never have fellowship with him ever. But if they do get saved, his primary mission then is to break their fellowship with God through temptation and sin, which will, listen, sever the flow of God's Spirit in their life, causing them to dry up. When that happens, the power of God in their life will be gone. The fruit of the Spirit will shrivel and die. Their light will be extinguished and their walk with and witness for God will be neutralized. The effect of this will be that their life will no longer bring God glory, but instead will bring dishonor and reproach on His name. Even as any son or daughter who breaks the law brings reproach on the family name. When God's children break His laws, it brings reproach on the family of God, and of course on God personally. And that discourages others from wanting to know him. Uh, I'm sure you've been watching the news or following uh, the fall of some of these mega pastors. It's very disheartening, especially when you read what was going on behind the scenes, what some of them were doing. Some of this stuff boggles the mind. I'm not really ready to embrace it as if it's true. I, I don't know, but if it is, my goodness. And the world looks at that and they go, if this is what Christians are all about, I want nothing to do with it. That's Satan's plan. I'm convinced that once you're saved, you're always saved. Again, your fellowship with Jesus positionally never changes. And the devil knows that if you're saved, he's lost you. No two ways around it. Of course, the next best thing is to get you to fall into sin, hopefully on a continual basis, because if he can't steal your salvation, the next best thing is to steal the assurance of your salvation, which John deals with at the end of this epistle. Because if you don't think you you know, if you think because you're sinning that you've lost your salvation, well, if you don't think you are a Christian, you're not going to live like a victorious Christian, and therefore uh, Satan's lost you, but at least he's neutralized your effectiveness. You're not going to touch anyone around you. Guys, this is spiritual warfare. You know, this is what spiritual warfare is. It's a battle for the souls of men and women, many of whom we know and love, family. And the way the devil does it is to try to keep people away from Jesus. That's true, and the world is full of ways he he does that. But even if a person does get saved, the plan then is to you know keep you out of the word keep you off your knees right and the idea is if he can get you to walk carnally where you know you're not having victory over sin well you're not much of a threat to his kingdom and besides that you're not going to be touching too many lives around you for christ and so that's spiritual warfare in a nutshell and that's why john is hitting this section so hard and driving home how important it is that now that we are saved, that we continue walking in the light, which is obedience to God's commandments. This will bring God glory and light the way for sinners to come to him and be saved. But guys, it all starts with our fellowship with him. Now listen, Satan is a master counterfeiter and deceiver. And he tries to tell people they... He tries to tell people that they have a relationship with God when they don't. How? By trying to direct their zeal for God down the path of religion and not relationship. You know, We Christians are famous for saying Christianity is not a religion. It's a relationship, right? And that's true. Look, Satan isn't anti-religion. In fact, he does some of his greatest work through religion. He knows that people naturally have... Uh, a desire to know God That's God has put that in every person's heart a God-shaped void which only he can satisfy now of course they don't always know it's a God-shaped void they, they know it's a void and like the woman by the well in John 4 they're trying to fill it with all kinds of things she was trying to fill it with human relationships that wasn't working out married and divorced five times now live with a guy Other people try to stuff that void or that emptiness with material things or uh, sexual pleasure or drugs, alcohol, something, anything to numb the pain. There are those who figure out because the Spirit's working on them that that's a God-shaped void that only uh, can be filled with a relationship with God himself, right? And so the devil capitalizes on this desire that many people have. Most people aren't going to be atheists or even agnostics most people are going to want to try to find God. And he capitalizes on that. And, uh, of course, there are some bizarre things he's pushing uh, people to get involved in under the guise of finding God. Uh, But let's just keep it a little more mainline. I grew up in the Roman Catholic Church. And uh, for many years, I had religion, but I didn't have a relationship. I didn't know any better. I went to church, I prayed the rosary, I lit the candles, I kept the, the holidays, the, the holy days. And, and Satan does that. He, he gets people to go to church. You, you want God? Fine, go to church. Light candles, pray the rosary, you know, uh, help out the local food uh, pantry. This gives them the illusion that they know God and are heaven-bound when all they really have is religion and not a living, vital relationship with Jesus where they are connected to him through the new birth and the Holy Spirit. John 15, Jesus had a lot to say about the uh, results of truly being connected to him. We talked about it the last couple of weeks, the fruit of the Spirit, right? So there's a lot of folks who are heavily involved in religion. And I mean, some of these people, I know Catholics will go to church every day of the week because in their minds, that's how you earn heaven, And Satan will just let them have all this activity, all these religious duties and and all this other stuff because he knows that in their mind that, that equates to going to heaven. Now, John knows that the truest test of the genuineness of a person's salvation is not going to church and maintaining a whole bunch of religious activities. Listen, it's walking in the light which means keeping the commandments of God on a regular basis. That is the truest test about where a person is with the Lord. Are they walking in the light on a continuous basis? Look at verse 5. This is the message which we have heard from him declared to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Let's just stop there. And we're reviewing a little bit from last week, but when John talks about those who walk in darkness, verse 6, and those who walk in the light, verse 7, he's talking about a pattern of living, a lifestyle, not an occasional sin or, you know, bi-yearly pilgrimage to the church for Christmas and Easter. A person's lifestyle Again, what they practice on a daily basis will reveal if they have a new nature. In other words, they're born again, saved. Or if they're still operating under the control of their fallen nature. In other words, they're an unbeliever and a slave of Satan and sin. I mean, let's be honest. And Jesus said this. You'll know them by their fruit. What is produced in their life? Is it the fruit of the Spirit? Which means you have God inside of you. Because those are the attributes of God. We talked about this. And only when you are born again and have the nature of God within you are you going to be able to bring forth the attributes of God or the fruit of the Spirit. But you can couple that or contrast that in Galatians five nineteen to 21, I believe, where Paul talks about the works of the flesh and then the fruit of the Spirit. Unbelievers produce dead works. And a lot of it's sinful stuff that their fallen nature wants them to walk in. Fruit is only produced through life. I mean, if it's a dead apple tree, it's not producing fruit. It has to be a living, fruit-bearing tree to bear fruit because life brings forth life, and fruit is born through life. Just like when we are connected to Jesus through the new birth, God begins to grow through us or in and through us the fruit of the Spirit. It's a sign that we are connected to Him. John tells us that all true Christians will walk in the light. Verse 7, or in other words, we'll practice the truth, as he said in verse 6. Again, verse 7, but if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Listen, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, the Greek says, continually cleanses us from all sin. And that's because once we're saved, in other words, we're in Christ, all our sins, past, present, and future, were placed under the cleansing blood of Of Jesus Christ. And guys, that means that when we uh, do sin in our daily practice, the blood of Jesus shed on Calvary's cross continues to wash us clean. In verse 7, John isn't making a conditional statement, he is stating a positional truth. He's not making a conditional statement, he's stating a positional truth. In other words, walking in the light doesn't save us, it doesn't keep us saved, it is the evidence that we are saved and children of God. I want you to see that. Cuz a lot of people read this and they read it conditionally. If we walk in the light, that's our responsibility, then we have forgiveness of sins. Well, that would make our salvation based on works. No. Walking in the light, somebody who does that continuously is somebody who was born again. It's an evidence that they are saved. And because we are saved, guys, And we are in Christ. That's why his blood continues to wash us clean when we sin, because we are saved. And Jesus lives in us. And um, he has opened a fountain of cleansing through his blood. And anyone who belongs to him and sins, that positionally now, the blood of Christ continually cleanses them from all unrighteousness. This perpetual cleansing continues, guys, all the way till the rapture, when we are glorified, receive our new glorified bodies, and we sin no more. So that day's coming, okay? Uh, John says right now, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth isn't in us. Someday, when we are glorified, when the rapture happens and we get our new bodies, uh, we, will not, we will have no sin nature, and we will never sin ever again. We will be perfect. Now, as I said a moment ago, my positional fellowship with God Uh, once I'm saved, can never be broken. But my practical fellowship, yes, can be broken through sin. And when that happens, I need to acknowledge my sin, confess it to God, and ask Him for forgiveness. When I do that as a child of God, then my day-by-day practical fellowship is restored. And listen, the power and blessings of God begin to flow into my life once again. Now, If if a Christian is backsliding or is backslid, okay, they're still saved. But all the power, all the joy, all the things that were growing in them because they were connected to Jesus in a vital, you know, walking in the Spirit and so on, uh, of course, all those things begin to dry up because once you sever yourself from Christ practically, you're never severed from Him positionally once you're saved. But if you get involved in sin, your practical fellowship is broken. And for that to be restored, you need to confess that sin. First of all, acknowledge it, confess it, and then ask God for forgiveness. When I do that, my practical fellowship is restored and the power and blessings of God begin to flow into my life once again. Now, John tells us that some people never receive forgiveness. I want you to see it there. He uh, tells us as he's talking about how we have our sins forgiven once we're Christians and we sometimes below it we walk away from the Lord for a while backslide how we are restored to him which is confession and repentance but John says that some people never receive forgiveness now I believe he has in mind unbelievers okay who can receive forgiveness by accepting Christ that's positional forgiveness right we'll talk about that more in a second that's called judicial forgiveness and I'll talk about that in a second because these are important concepts Uh, And I'll show you why in just a second. If you don't know this and why I'm taking a little extra time to lay the foundation, uh, you can get yourself into some serious trouble. But uh, John says some people never receive forgiveness because they refuse to acknowledge the sin in their lives. They don't acknowledge the sin in their lives. If they don't confess that sin, they're not going to be forgiven. He gives us two examples of these kinds of people now. I am sure when John gives these two examples in verses 8 and 10, he had some Gnostic heresy in mind that he's been battling against, you know, trying to combat, or there were some other heresies that John was fighting against, as all the New Testament believers uh, in the first century were fighting against. So I'm sure John's got a couple of examples of what he's thinking of when he says these things. I'm going to just put it into our time frame. okay? i give two examples of people that don't receive forgiveness. First, verse 8, John says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. The word sin there in verse 8 is singular. See it? And it's speaking of the sin nature, the fallen sin nature. If you read Romans 6, uh, many times Paul talks about sin, singular. When he does, he's talking about not sins in general, but the sin nature from which all sin springs. Okay, So verse 8, he uses the word sin, singular, talking about uh, the uh, sin nature. Every person, of course, born into this world uh, has inherited a sin nature from Adam. And this then produces various sins, plural, which he mentions in verse 9. In other words, guys, all human beings are born with a corrupt, fallen nature, a corrupt heart bent on living in rebellion against God. uh, And the result is the sins they commit every day. How do we know the sin nature is in us? Well, because of the sin that comes forth, right? I mean, it's just that simple. And that's why John is saying if you have a new nature, if you are saved, born again, have the nature of God, there's going to be some new attitudes, new ways of thinking new desires new actions that's it's as simple as that it's not rocket science okay it's it's basically just christianity 101 if you really are born of the spirit the spirit of god lives inside of you he has given you the nature of god and from that nature now will come forth the attributes of god the love joy peace long-suffering kindness goodness faithfulness gentleness self-control all of these things cannot be uh manufactured from a fallen heart, it has to be, it can only come through a living new heart that God gives to us when we get saved. But we know that all human beings are born with this corrupt, fallen nature. And uh, the evidence, again, is the sins that they commit every day. However, today, most mental health professionals are telling people that they are not responsible for their bad behavior. They tell them that they were born a perfectly functioning person, psychologically speaking, but have been corrupted or damaged due to external factors. This causes these people who have been told this, I have no sin. Going back to verse 8, it's not my fault. (laughs) I'm not responsible for the things I do. I'm not a sinner. I'm a victim. One Christian author. Speaking on this very topic, said, and I quote, psychological counseling often promotes the belief that problems adversely affecting a person's mental and emotional welfare are determined by circumstances external to the person, such as parental abuse or environment. The Bible tells us that a man's evil heart and his sinful choices cause his mental, emotional, and behavioral problems. For from, and he quotes now Mark 7, verses 21 to 23, uh, where Jesus is speaking, For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile the man. The author goes on, psychotherapy attempts to improve the self through concepts such as self-love, self-esteem, self-worth, self-image, self-actualization, etc. The Bible teaches that self is humanity's main problem, not the solution to the ills that plague mankind. And it prophetically identifies the chief solution of psychological counseling, self-love. Most psychological counseling is built around the idea that when we were born, we were born a perfectly functioning, clean slate. And it was through an external environmental pressures, our upbringing, or things that people did to us, or whatever it might be, that you know sent us down the wrong path, kind of broke us and damaged us. But, you know, it's all linked to we lack self-love, they say. So all these problems can be fixed if we just learn to love ourselves. Well, you know, the Bible says that we already do love ourselves. No man ever hated his flesh, but cares for it, nourishes it, Paul tells us, right? Jesus, you know, and I love how one atheistic psychotherapist named Eric Fromm, in wanting to kind of reach Christians to expand his practice back in the 40s, I think, took that verse where Jesus said, love others as you love yourself, he turned it around and reinterpreted and said, uh, you can't love others until you first learn to love yourself. You'd be shocked and amazed at how many churches and Christian pastors and teachers and even professors have bought into that, taking their you know, theology. They don't even realize, I, I think, some of them, that this came from the mouth of a godless atheist. The Bible never teaches us we can't love others until we first learn to love ourselves. It says, look, we already love ourselves. We all take care of ourselves. We feed ourselves. We clothe ourselves. Now love others the same way. Take care of them. They need it to be fed and clothed and so on. Self-love. Oh, that's where it's at, they say. Folks, self-love, as the author goes on to say, is the catalyst to a life of depravity and selfishness. That's where the Bible tells us to die to self. Self-esteem? Are you kidding me? Don't feed self. Esteem it? No, kill it. You, you feed it and you build it up and you esteem it. It's a, a monster that will grow and, and dominate everything. Then he ends by quoting out of 2 Timothy 3, verse 1, Know this also, that in the last days perilous times shall come, for men shall be lovers of their own selves why we see that today and again I think this is fulfilled today uh, to a large degree because of the influence of psychology in our uh, world and even in the church again going back to the idea that we have no sin I'm not a sinner I'm a victim okay look it's not until we take responsibility for our actions by first of all acknowledging that we are sinners not helpless victims sinners and that we are guilty of committing sins against God's holy commandments. Look, it's not until we acknowledge our sins and confess them to God that we will receive forgiveness. He wants to forgive us, but we have to, we have to tell him, Lord, I have sinned. Now, I will mention one more application to John's statement in verse 8, and then we'll move on about those who say we have no sin. And that's in regard to a doctrine known as the doctrine of Christian perfectionism. Christian perfectionism. Christian perfectionism is the belief that once a person is saved, they are perfect, which means they have no sin and do not any longer commit sin. I'm not sure it's a real uh, popular idea, but I have heard some Christians that cling to it. Okay? Um this idea that, and I always would love to be a fly in their car uh, on the expressway. <laughs> we'll see how perfect you are. Um, how do they come up with this? That once you're saved, you are, your sins are gone, and you never sin again. Well, this doctrine is based in part on John's statement in chapter 3. Why don't you turn there? I'll just read you um, verse 5, part of verse 6, and then verse 9. 1 John 3, verse 5. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. Verse 6, letter part. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor has known him. Verse 9. Whoever has been born of God does not sin. Oh, there it is. It's plain as the nose on your face. See, right here in the scripture, right? Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. Well, we'll get to this when we get to chapter 3, but I'll just give you a little heads up, all right? In the Greek, what John is actually saying is, no child of God could live habitually in sin. He says in chapter one, if we say we don't have any sin, we're deceiving ourselves, all right? True children of God, real Christians, they're going to sin. Now, he starts off chapter two by saying, my little children, I mean, yeah, I want you to know that, you know, even even true believers sin. I'm writing to you, not that you should go out and say, okay, great, well, I'm going to, if I'm destined to sin or if I'm, you know, if I'm going to keep sinning once in a while until I get my new body, then you know what? I'll just give in to it. And, you know, no, I don't want you to go out and sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he goes on, okay? But I want you to understand. We talked about this last week. Be careful to be sensitive. Read your Bibles carefully. Look at context. Is what God is saying in any given passage a positional truth or a practical truth? The problem with John 3 and this whole idea of Christian perfectionism is that it takes a positional truth and applies it in a practical way. In other words, positionally in Christ, I'm sinless, I'm blameless, I'm holy, I'm pure. That's positionally in Christ because I'm, you know, I'm in Christ. But that's not practical stuff. Practically, I still live in a body of death. I still sin. I still blow it. I'm not perfect practically day-to-day stuff. No. And That's why John said if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. That's practical truth. Positional truth says I am perfect, righteous, holy, sinless, because I'm in Christ. You cannot take a positional truth and apply it in a practical way without doing major damage to that doctrine and really messing people up when you teach that. John says in verse 8 that those who say we have no sin are deceiving themselves, and the truth is not in them. And I think he probably has in mind the spirit of truth. In other words, they're not born of the spirit, they're not saved. Now, the second category of those who won't receive forgiveness from God, and... Who also are deceiving themselves John mentions in verse 10 if we say that we have not sinned I'll stop there whereas the first group in verse 8 could be saying that they no longer sin after they're saved again Christian perfectionism this group of people seem to be saying that listen they have never sinned at all you might be thinking how, how is it possible that anyone could believe that they have never sinned. How is that possible? Look, it's possible if they change the rules or the standards by which certain behaviors are called sin in the first place. In our culture today, many have abandoned the idea of moral absolutes in favor of moral relativism. They believe that there are no moral absolutes. These would be God's holy commandments is righteous standard of right and wrong okay of course if there is no absolute standard of right and wrong then sin is impossible because sin is a violation of god's laws but if god doesn't exist and most of these folks who believe this way are atheists at very least they reject the god of the bible but those who claim sin doesn't it's not real doesn't exist because they believe god doesn't exist and um If God doesn't exist, his commandments can't exist, so there's nothing for you to violate called sin, okay, when you do. Again, this causes them to say, I have not sinned because sin doesn't exist. And they'll tell you things like, you know, your truth is your truth, my truth is my truth, you know, whatever you feel is right to do is right for you. Whatever I feel is right to do is right for me. It's a philosophy rooted in relativism. And again, these people don't believe that there is such a thing as sin. And they would tell you, when you try to tell them that they have violated something that God has said. In other words, they have or are committing sin. They'll tell you things like, well, I don't sin. Uh, don't lay a trip on me. That's your truth, not my truth. Okay. Uh, when I have sex outside of marriage or lie to get that promotion or engage in a homosexual activity or kill babies in the womb, it's not sin because my truth says it's okay, it's right for me to do that. Well, by that mentality, Hitler wasn't a murderous monster. He was just living out his truth. Now, I've actually heard uh, Christians challenge, push back those that have this mindset with that very very illustration. And of course, they buckle immediately and say, well, no, 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 Hitler was... So you say, well, so that Hitler wasn't wrong. He, he wasn't doing anything wrong. He was living out his truth. Oh, no, 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 Hitler was wrong. We, we just You just said there is no right or wrong. I mean, what is it? You can't have it both ways. If there is no sin because there is no moral absolutes and everybody is doing whatever seems right in their own eyes and Hitler was just simply living out his truth. You can't say he was a sinner or or evil or 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 whatever. See, a lot of these folks don't really sit and think through the ramifications of what they are believing with this mindset. Sounds very liberating, right? Oh, your truth is your truth, my truth is my truth, you know? You know, whatever. Until you start pressing them a little bit and you realize or they realize they got some big problems. that way of thinking i mean this philosophy guys has brought us to a to a period in our nation's history not unlike the period that the nation of israel entered into during the time of the judges that was one of the blackest periods in israel's history which was summed up i don't know five six seven times in the book with the words there was no king in israel therefore everyone did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. There was no king in Israel, the leader of the nation in the sense of uh, laws. The king, he, he was the one who oversaw the laws. He was the one that, you know, they traced back to him and so on. He was the law keeper, the sovereign judge of the nation idea. But uh, there was no king formally in Israel at this time. Therefore, everyone did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. You had a nation built on moral relativism at that time. Look, when a nation moves from moral absolutes, which is God's commandments, to moral relativism, doing whatever seems right in your own eyes, that nation is ripe for God's judgment. That's where we are. We are a nation that is ripe for God's judgment because more and more... We are throwing out God's laws, God's commandments, and people are doing whatever feels good, whatever they think is right, which leads to entire assemblies of legislatures cheering when an abortion law passes. A law that makes abortion legal right up until the moment of birth, and a lot of other laws you know that uh, have been enacted lately. the outworking of moral relativism is tolerance tolerance you see when people want to do whatever seems right in their own eyes whether anybody opposing them or judging them look they naturally don't want to be in opposition to anybody else look if you want to do your thing without anybody looking over your shoulder and judging you and giving you a hard time then you're not going to you know you're going to let them do what they want to do and you're not going to give them a hard time right that's why all this tolerance then comes into vogue all right and so the general attitude in a morally relativistic culture is you accept me I'll accept you we won't judge each other which is the general attitude we are seeing in our day and age in this country And so we hear a lot today in our society about tolerance, acceptance, inclusiveness, and love, interesting, which the world defines basically as accepting whatever people want to do and how they want to live because to speak out against immorality and sin is to be judgmental and bigoted, self-righteous, and narrow-minded. Now, guys, in contrast to man's relativistic moral insanity, stands the word of God, which is true and righteous. Turn to Psalm 19. Of course, for many, many years, God's word was the foundation upon which our society was built. Satan has been chipping away at that foundation for a long time. And now things are beginning to crumble. Our bedrock institutions, marriage. In fact, it's gotten so bad that the most basic thing that God has created us, the sexuality. The, the first thing a doctor says when a child is born is what? It is a boy, it is a girl. Now that's going out the window. Psalm 11 verse 3, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Well, nothing. If we lose the foundation upon which this country was built and we are losing it fast, this country will crumble. We're already seeing it. The Word of God stands in direct contrast to all this relativistic moral insanity that we see going on around us. And I love Psalm 19. Let's look at verse 7. The law of the Lord. Now, all these are just different ways of saying the Word of God. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord, word of God, is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right. There is right and wrong. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is all the word of God, all God's commandments, all God's standards found in his word. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. The psalmist is telling us, guys, that God has given us absolute truth in his word. And that becomes the standard by which we judge what is right and wrong. Not our feelings. Not some kind of subjective mumbo-jumbo where we just feel and work our way through life just feeling. No. There is absolute truth. And God gave it to us in his word. We go back to 1 John 1 verse 10. Where John said, If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Look, the only human being that was ever born on planet earth that was sinless and who remained sinless and who died sinless was Jesus Christ. And anyone else who makes that claim is deceiving themselves and calling God a liar because God has said all have sinned and fall short of God's glory and as I said earlier it's not until believers are raptured and receive their glorified bodies that this sanctification process will be complete in other words we will go from you know we were once born in sin Then we got saved and received a new nature, but the old nature hung on, so now there was that struggle going on, Galatians 5, right? The flesh warring against the spirit, the spirit warring against the flesh, right? But when the rapture happens, we will now receive a new body without a sin nature, and then we will finally be sanctified fully, sinless, for all of eternity. Until then, all of us are going to sin once in a while. That's kind of John's point here. Okay? And when we do, God has given us instructions on what to do so that our sins are forgiven and our fellowship with Him is restored. And it's not, again, rocket science. Verse 9. Very simple. You know, God keeps His truths simple. When it comes to the most basic things, He wants to get across. Salvation, something a child can understand. I mean, God makes it simple because He doesn't want only Giant intellectual kind of people to be able to comprehend his truth. Children, he wants children to be able to understand, you know? And so when it comes to something as important as forgiveness when we sin, John says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, at this point, I want to read something that William MacDonald, as uh, a great commentator, uh, pointed out. Uh, which I believe is important. That's why I want to read it to you. Keeping First John 1, 9 in mind, okay, that we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. MacDonald says, and I quote, the forgiveness John speaks about here is parental, not judicial. Judicial forgiveness means forgiveness from the penalty of sins, which the sinner receives when he believes on the Lord Jesus Christ. It is called judicial because it is granted by God acting as judge. But what about sins which a person commits after conversion? As far as the penalty is concerned, the price has already been paid by the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. But as far as fellowship in the family of God is concerned, the sinning saint needs parental forgiveness, that is, the forgiveness of his father. He obtains it by confessing his sin. We need judicial forgiveness only once, that takes care of the penalty for all our sins, past, present, and future. But we need parental forgiveness throughout our entire Christian life, end quote. Now, in verse 9, when John talks about, you know, if we confess our sins, the word confess in the Greek literally means to say the same thing. To say the same thing. In other words, when we confess our sins, we are telling God that we agree with him, that what he called sin, the very thing I went ahead and did anyways, was wrong. It was was sin. It was not right. It was I'm not trying to put any kind of face on it that would make it look better than it is. I am being, I'm just, Lord, you said it was sin. I did it. I agree with you. I was wrong. It was, it was a, a, a transgression on my part. You're just confessing your sins without any buts? Well, yeah, R- Lord, I-, I did that, okay? Uh, you know, I-, I lost my temper there at uh, the store, but, you know, that person pushed my buttons and wasn't really my fault. Fo- no, I don't want to hear about your buttons. <laughs> I'm talking about your buttons. I- you-, you don't have the luxury when you-, when you do something wrong, you sin, you confess it, right? No excuses. No justifications, no accusations that someone else made me do it. I'm not really, I'm a victim, not really at fault here. One pastor rightly observes, and I quote, there are few people today who think they are sinlessly perfect, and yet not many really think of themselves as sinners. Many will say, I make mistakes, or I'm not perfect, or I'm only human. But usually they say such things to excuse or defend their actions this is different from knowing and admitting i'm a sinner to say that we have no sin puts us in a dangerous place because god's grace and mercy is extended to sinners not to those who make mistakes or i'm only human or no one is perfect people but sinners we need to realize the victory and forgiveness that comes from saying i am a sinner even a great sinner, Paul said, I am the chief of sinners. But I have a Savior who cleanses sinners from all sin. That, that's what God wants to hear. I was wrong. I went ahead and did what you told me was wrong to do. I did it, Lord. I confess it to you. I was wrong. I agree with you. It was sin. And now I ask you for forgiveness and for the grace to not go there ever again you know when you talk about the way different people handle (laughs) um how they come to god you know and um, how they see themselves i don't think could be better illustrated than uh the two men in the temple who were praying turn to luke 18 jesus told this parable or this story actually i don't think it was a parable i think it really happened He spent a lot of time in the temple watching people. And I think he really observed these two guys. One was a Pharisee, one was a tax collector. It's interesting how both men approached God and what God said about each of them. So Jesus said, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. Now, you get the impression God's not even listening. So he's over in the corner praying, but, you know... He's praying, you know, basically to himself. He said, "God, I thank you that I'm not like other men—extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I possess." And a lot of eyes in there, isn't there? I, 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 I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess verse 13, and the tax collector standing afar off would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven but beat his breast saying God be merciful to me a sinner. Jesus said I tell you this, this man, the tax collector went down to his house justified rather than the other the Pharisee for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So the Pharisee, you don't hear any mention of any sin. He's very observant to the shortcomings of others, but very blind to him to his own sins. He thinks he's perfect. Okay? And that's why he's not being forgiven. He didn't ask to be forgiven. He just went on and on and on about how wonderful he was. And God, you're blessed to have me on your team. This other loser. Look at this tax collector. Well, the tax collector came with a broken heart and sincerely confessed his sins. And that's what God turns his ear towards. He turns a deaf ear to the proud, the arrogant, those that think that they don't need any forgiveness because they're so perfect. But his eyes and ears are attentive to the cries of the broken, the contrite, and so on. These folks he will not turn a deaf ear toward. Also, when you talk about the word confess in the Greek, Yes, uh, it means to say the same thing, but it's also uh, translates a verb from the Greek that is in the present tense. Anything in the present tense in the Greek means an ongoing thing, okay? Which means that we must keep on confessing our sin because we sin all the time, right? It's not like you get saved, you know, it's, guys. You know, when when you when you got married, like I was, I was. Uh, Watching a marriage seminar, a Christian seminar, and the guy, the teacher was making a little joke, and uh, he said, uh, "Look, I told my wife I loved her when I got married to her, and until I take it back, it's still in force. I don't need to keep saying it." Well, well, obviously that's wrong, um, <laughs> but some Christians, I guess, apply that concept to asking forgiveness for sin. Well, now, Lord, when I got saved, I asked you to forgive me. And, you know, it's good for, you know, I'm still operating under that request. But that's not how it works. When you talk about practical fellowship, you're going to sin. When you do, you need to confess that sin to God constantly when you sin, right? It's not a once-and-for-all confession, and you don't worry about the rest of your life. Look, as a Roman Catholic, I was told that you had to go to a confessional, And confess your sins to a priest, because he alone had the power to forgive sins. That is absolutely untrue. In fact, priests don't have the power to forgive sins. Only God has the power to forgive sins. You don't have to go to a confessional or to church or any given place to confess your sins. All sin starts in the heart. Therefore, you bring your heart to God. And from a sincere heart, you confess your sins to him, and he will forgive you, based On the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Guys, this is essential for our practical everyday fellowship with the Lord to be restored when we sin. You remember what Proverbs 28, verse 13 says He who covers his sins will not prosper. It's very important that we deal with our sins. Now, I'm talking about as Christians now, okay? Practical sins. For practical fellowship, it's very important that when we sin, we don't try to cover our sins. Because the Bible says you're not going to prosper. See, that becomes an issue that God won't let you... We want to sidestep things. God shows us, okay, this area needs to be dealt with. We, we got to do some business. Well, well, can I just sidestep it, Lord, and we'll come back to it later? God says, oh, no. No, no, we're going to deal with it right now. Because if you don't, you're not going to prosper spiritually. You're not going to be all God wants you to be if there's unconfessed sin in your life. Now, we're all sinners, okay? I'm just saying, though that there are folks that they're, they're involved in something that's fairly serious and they're just not dealing with it. And um, God is saying that is always going to be a roadblock between you and I in the path I want to lead your life. We can't get past it until you confess it. Acknowledge it and confess it so I can forgive you. He who covers his sin will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes his sins will have mercy from God, forgiveness. All right, let's finish up verse 9. Again, we confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. First, he is faithful. Why is he faithful? Because he's promised to forgive us our sins when we confess our sins to him. I mean, whenever God makes you a promise, he's always faithful to keep it, no matter what it is. I mean, that's the whole thing. And God lifts up his faithfulness in many places in the Old Testament and New. That he is a God that can be trusted. When he gives his word, he keeps it. You never have to worry. Well, God promised me that, but did he really mean it? Of course he meant it. He's faithful. Oh, but you don't know how big the sin is. I mean, this is a huge sin. I don't think God will forgive me for this sin. Did he not say that any sin he will forgive you for? Didn't Paul say that in Romans? No matter how big the sin, grace is bigger to forgive. Okay? So he's faithful. I'm not, but he is. Okay? And secondly, he is just. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. The Greek word is a word for righteous. The reason that God is righteous when he forgives us our sins, the reason why he can forgive us for our sins, and not violate his own character, his holiness, and his justice, because sin has to be punished. God's a righteous judge. And righteous judges do not sweep sin under the or violation of the law under the rug. If somebody breaks the law, a righteous judge has to have them pay for that crime. The reason that God can forgive us is because he paid our penalty. Jesus went to the cross and paid. Sin had to be paid for. We couldn't do it. Sinners can't die for sinners and so on. It would take the death of the innocent dying for the guilty, shedding his blood, which is what Jesus did. That gave God a legitimate judicial right to forgive us because all sin had been paid for. Anybody can be forgiven. The whole world. But most people in the world... Will not be forgiven because they won't ask for it. Let's close with this. Turn to Colossians 2. We've talked about this before, but I thought about it today when I was preparing this message, and it does fit, I think, since we're talking about how that God is just to forgive us our sins because our sins have been paid for by Christ. Turn to Colossians 2. Let's look at verses 13 and 14, and then we'll close. And you, being dead in trespasses sins, having forgiven you all trespasses, I'm skipping to the end of verse 13, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When Paul says in verse 14 that Jesus took our sins out of the way, listen, having nailed it, nailed them, to his cross, he's referring to a practice back in those days that was very well known, very well known, and which guilty criminals, so they were, they committed a crime, they were arrested, brought before a judge, and they were uh, declared guilty, what they would have to do is they would then be put into the dungeon, where they would be there for a certain amount of time until they had paid their debt to society, as we say, right? But while they were doing their time, as they were, uh, as they were declared guilty, uh, a piece of parchment was taken, and the crime or crimes they were guilty of, had been convicted of, was then written on the parchment and nailed to the dungeon door. When they had finished paying their debt, they would take that piece of parchment down and write on the bottom, to Tetelestai, which meant paid in full they would roll it up and give it to that person so that he could never again be uh, accused of not paying for his crimes. And Paul picked up on that. What an incredible illustration. I mean, he nailed it, okay? Um, He said that Jesus was not guilty, but he took all of our sins and nailed them to his cross. He paid the debt. And before he bowed his head and dismissed his spirit on Calvary's cross, he said, it is finished. The Greek is tetelestai, which means paid in full. Paid in full. Now, that payment was for every person on the face of the earth. If a person refuses to receive what Jesus did on Calvary's cross, the death which he paid for all their sins, then they will have to stand before God someday and be sentenced to pay for their own crimes against God. Now, believe it or not, we live in a such a godless time where there is no fear of God in many people's hearts and dies. When you tell people that, look, Jesus died for your sins. He paid the price. You want to go to heaven, just receive him, okay? Because if you don't, you're going to stand before God and he's going to sentence you to pay for those crimes yourself, all your sins. And here's what a lot of people today would say. Well, that's okay. I know I'm a good person. When I stand before God, I'm going to plead my case. As if God doesn't know your case. I'm going to plead my case and show him all the good things I've done. Sounds like that Pharisee. And I believe he'll be fair. And let me into heaven because I'm such a great guy. I love what J. Vernon McGee said. We'll close with this. He said, yes, my friend, you will be able to get a fair trial there. Your life is on tape. It's going back a little ways. <laughs> your life is on tape. And Jesus Christ, the judge, happens to have the tape. I think he will have it on a television screen. Jumbotron. You think? It, talk about jumbotrons. I'm sure God's got one. And um, he will have your whole life on tape. Put it on a television screen so that you can watch it too. (laughs) This was your life. Do you think your life can stand the test? McGee asks. Are you willing to stand before God and have him play the tape of your entire life? Mr. I'm a good person or Miss I'm a good person? I do not know about you, but I could not make it. Thank God for his grace, for by grace you are saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. Amen? Amen. We'll pick it up next week in chapter 2. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your goodness and grace. We thank you for sending your Son to die in our place, Lord Jesus. Thank you for your great love wherewith you loved us. Nobody took your life from you by force. You laid it down freely for the sheep. And, Lord, we thank you that because of what you did on Calvary's cross 2,000 years ago, your blood continues to cleanse us from all sin as we have given our lives and hearts to you and are born again. And now, Lord, we pray you give us grace to live every day in obedience, walking in the light. But if we do sin, give us grace not to excuse it, justify it, uh, accuse anybody else of being responsible for it. Give us grace, Lord to get on our faces before you and say, Father, I have sinned. What you said was wrong, I did, I sinned. I acknowledge my sin. Please, Lord, forgive me. Cleanse me afresh with the blood of Christ. I ask all this in your precious name. Father, thank you that when we do sin, we have an advocate with you, Jesus the righteous who is the propitiation for our sins. Lord, we ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word. We ask it all in Jesus' precious name. Amen.